Hello and welcome to the next episode of Thought Architecture. Perhaps I should start calling everyone Thought Architects. Welcome Thought Architects to the next episode of Thought Architecture. So in today's one, it's really, <laughs> it's really a, a, a bit of an answer to friends, you know, who are like, so what exactly do you do? Because um, while I have many faults and many flaws and I'm dumb in a lot of areas, I excel in other areas. And really pinning down where I excel is quite difficult if you don't have this particular understanding. So today, so today we're going to go over cognitive load, which is quite interesting when you get down to it and you start understanding, uh, you know, how people think as well as what are the mechanics that um, is our best understanding currently of how the, the mind works and processes information. And so if you've heard things like Charlie Munger talk about frameworks, um, a lattice work of mental models, you know, if you've heard of Farnham Street talking about mental models as well, you know, this is going to be up your alley. Um, okay, cool. So let's begin. So it all starts with this idea of um, cognitive load, you know, like how long does it take you before you feel absolutely brain smashed and why what's happening here? And so there's something called cognitive load theory. Like if you imagine your brain is a muscle, how much load can that muscle take before it fatigues temporarily on that day? And how much can it handle before it absolutely just starts throwing everything away or resisting and not doing anything. So we've got two types of cognitive fatigue. So I want you to imagine someone picking up a heavy weight and they pull their back out. They can't do it, okay? So the brain doesn't actually pull a muscle or anything like that. It just starts throwing data away, all right? So any type of practice that you do is meaningless. And the other type is where someone's working well within their range of the weights that they can use. And let's say they do 10 repetitions and they're fatigued. They can't do an 11th repetition. So that, that progressive overload, that's a good form of cognitive fatigue. Okay. So most people don't know the difference between the two and they just assume that they're bad or good because we still have this innate sense of like, oh, I'm talented or I'm not. I'm smart or I'm not. We don't have this idea that it's, it's muscular. You know, we can train it up. It doesn't matter what your starting point is. The person who trains it up more is going to be better than the pe person who's naturally gifted but puts no effort into it because these things will atrophy. Okay, so saying this, we come to uh, three points within cognitive load. We've got intrinsic cognitive load. So what does that mean? That means that let's say you're studying physics, quantum physics, like it is a tough subject to get your head around intrinsically that subject has got a lot of demand okay so you can understand it like an exercise that's just very difficult to do and it's going to demand a lot of your muscles work together it's going to demand that you do things that are very difficult to do okay so that is intrinsic cognitive load the subject matter itself then you've got extrinsic cognitive load which is basically saying the way that the information is presented to you you know so in this way, if a teacher's presentation is messy or complicated, it goes on tangents and you are the one who has to constantly keep track of the topic, that is extrinsic cognitive load. And then the final one that we've got is germane cognitive load. And germane cognitive load basically says like, what is the limit of your, your entire intellectual capacity? What is the limit that you can reach? Um, and so obviously, 
intrinsic cognitive load will take a lot of energy from you. And then extrinsic cognitive load will take a lot of energy from you, which will limit your germane cognitive load. Now, germane cognitive load is something that's quite interesting. It increases over time because the longer you're alive, the more information you kind of relate together, the more information you can be like, oh, that's kind of like this, because you start patterning things very well. So your germane cognitive load is also a reflection of how well you can tie things together, how well you can kind of say, oh, I've seen this before, I've patterned this before, this works like this, or, oh, it's kind of similar to this, but with this one key exception. And so germane cognitive load helps people acquire information faster, it helps people process information faster as well. Um, it helps people become more accurate at predicting. So I'm more, much more interested in germane cognitive load. How do we increase everyone's general cognitive ability? Okay. And for this, uh, we have to go into schema theory, which is quite interesting. Okay, so when you're presented with a lot of information, you've, you've got like tons of pieces of information. And the way that I work with someone is I just say to them, okay, if I ask you to keep a certain amount of information in your brain, your working memory, the brain's manager is going to be the weak point of your brain when you're learning, when you're thinking, when you're processing information. So your working memory can basically handle between three to five working memory chunks. And those chunks don't matter, okay? What matters is how big each chunk is, and that depends on your exposure to certain methods. So, for example, if you're learning a language, a chunk could just be a phoneme, a particular sound, right? So learning um, Thai... It's really different. The pronunciation is really different. There's a sound in there that sounds like uh, the NG sound at the end of words like sing, ring, song. Okay, now imagine starting a word with that. So, ngo, ngu. Okay, um, and right there, um, I think I just said snake and uh, rambutan, you know, the t that, uh, that really freaky fruit. So the point is, is that um, to be able to say those in the beginning, it takes quite a lot of effort because your brain has to balance a lot of things. So that would probably take up at least one or two working memory slots. But the more proficient you get at it and the more automatic it becomes, the more it takes up uh, much less of your working memory and the more you can kind of fit into your working memory as well. So the size of the chunks need to be exercised in accordance with the topics. And the more you exercise these, so let's say you learn Thai, and then you learn Arabic, and then you learn Hebrew, and Chinese, and Japanese, you create a collection of sounds. Your brain gets much better at collecting sounds. And so your working memory now demands fewer chunks when you're learning a new language and new sounds, because it's processed sounds before. It's become better at that metacognitive process. Okay. So in this way, you kind of establish your skills. And the skills that we're talking about is working memory skills. Great. So your working memory skills are aided by um, these frameworks that you have in your brain, these schema. So uh, the, best, the best way to explain this is to say, if I start talking about words, if I start saying frying pan, pot, stove, sink, washing liquid floor, you're going to put all of these words together 
and see what's the relationship between these words and you're going to establish a framework oh he's just listing words that are things you can find in a kitchen okay and in linguistics you call that a semantic field but it doesn't have to be that way so if i say for example uh, pedals seat handlebars chain crank frame wheels spokes now your brain's going to put it together in accordance with an object it's not necessarily the same semantic field now it's all part of a whole a one piece and i'm describing pieces so your brain is able to kind of stitch these things together based on relationships that you already know and it's the relationships that are important and that creates our framework okay so i've just done this based on things we can touch now if i start saying something like bear okay now you've got the word bear okay your brain is probably split into a few different ways now i'm going to layer the next part forest okay now your brain is probably like starting to think oh okay it's animals okay things like that and then if i add another word like uh smoky uh fire public and announcement and things like that you probably have now cartoon bear in your head and there's a lot of associated relationships that are coming in television all this type of thing and the the idea is that by getting a little bit more information your brain is able to then categorize and classify things according to these frameworks these schemata and the more adaptive schemata is the better so the relationships between them and how quickly you can establish new relationships as well and so you can actually um, flow your frameworks around something that's new for you but relating it to old things okay so you create new frameworks you reorganize frameworks as well so that's really what the focus is with learning that's really what the focus is with processing information we're looking at what frameworks do you have and so how automatic are your thought, thought processes uh, how much skill acquisition have you done that can graduate a chunk a working memory chunk from like one piece into much bigger pieces and so it becomes automatic and it's not part of your cognitive load so let's think about riding a bicycle in the beginning it probably took all of your mental effort to coordinate all parts of your body and your balance to ride this bicycle and not just hit something okay so that's that's a lot of cognitive load and that's using up all of your working memory chunks but a little bit more practice it takes less mental effort because you start feeling it because you're practicing very 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 mindfully your brain is thinking about all these things consistently and so because of that it starts to say okay we've got protocol x protocol y and so instead of a working memory chunk being pedal left pedal right then it starts to group it together and one working memory chunk becomes pedal both legs and then after a time pedal becomes um, you know connected with um, handlebar movements and then all of this becomes so connected that you can ride without hands on the handlebars and you can still turn and talk on your phone and probably smoke a cigarette at the same time so your brain adapts very fast if you're giving it the right kind of input the right kind of feedback and you can do this a lot faster if you are focusing on how the information is being presented and how you are practicing and that's what we're trying to do and so i have a huge belief in this idea of skill acquisition even if you're never going to use the skill it's worth developing those skills 
Why? Because what it's going to do is it's going to have the secondary transfer effect of creating frameworks in your brain and strengthening working memory. So whatever skill you have will have a transfer over to other skills. And practicing that, that transfer of skills can make you more agile, cognitively agile. Okay, so maybe I'm losing everyone. So let me just back up a little bit. One of my favorite uh, books is the Jack Reacher novels, the Lee Child. Um, Lee Child is the author. And you might know that by the Tom Cruise movies. He made two. Um, and I loved them. I thought they were great. People objected because Tom Cruise is not a six foot two hulking blonde blue eyed figure. You know, that's who Jack Reacher was in the books. You know, blonde. Uh, I think he had white hair. I'm not too sure. I don't care. Uh, you know, like what someone presents as is little significance to me. But the point is, is that um, I really liked these novels. I mean, the guy, it's basically a classic Western Clint Eastwood type of character walking around solving crimes. He's a detective and the way he does it is kind of like a wild Western sheriff. Okay. Very smart man. Um, and he just gets mixed up in things. So, you know, the books are entertaining, but in the movie, um, the first Jack Reacher movie, um, it's based on the book One Shot by Lee Child. And there's something very interesting in there that he says. He says, it takes people who aren't necessarily very smart. It, by the way, he's talking about the military, military training. Uh, the military takes people who aren't necessarily very smart. And it makes them seem smart by beating some tactical, some basic tactical awareness into them until it becomes instinctive. So what's he talking about? He's just talking about people being trained up so that tactical awareness is an automatic process in their brain. And he talks about this when he's talking about the sniper. So the basic flaw in the entire frame up that happens in this movie is that there's a killing at the beginning of 12 random people. But the way that it's orientated is that the sniper does not have the, his back to the sun. The, the sun is not on the sniper's back. Okay, so that's a no-no straight away because it'll interfere. It'll show lens flare, all that kind of stuff. Number two, the sniper has to kind of move the gun from left to right, which is a no-no. And again, the tactical awareness that's beaten into people is that it must go up and down. So you line up all your shots um, vertically, not horizontally, because you can't you can't really see that type of thing. So the idea is that that basic tactical awareness means that people can, can become very effective very quickly, um, and they're just told what to do. And so that was his big flaw. And so what you think is like, wow, that's very smart. It actually turns out to be basic training that just most people don't get, and people are beaten into into this kind of training. Um, and so the, the very simple concept is they are not smart. The frameworks that they are um, taught and they are developed, they have to develop a certain amount of musculature. They have to do it so that working memory comes into play. Okay, so it becomes automatic. That type of physical skill acquisition is just beaten into them to the point where it actually looks like they are amazing at what they do. But actually anyone could get there. And this is the main point. The idea is that by using uh, our cognitive load theory, 
this person could easily go into a situation and assess where's the best place to kind of shoot from, um, you know, to line up the targets, etc. at what time of day. And by doing this, they seem smart, but actually they're just using a very basic framework that's actually something they've practiced so much that it's completely automatic. And so you do get this kind of developed intelligence. Without a doubt, you can develop intelligence with something by focusing on these types of skills. Now, the opposition to this is actually the enemy of this. Um, the enemy of all of this is basically people who start off as intelligent and they, they basically don't see any type of skill acquisition as meaningful. Why? Because they don't see a point to acquiring the goal, the result, the product of all the practice is something that isn't desirable at all where actually the process of developing that skill is the goal. It is the thing that's going to upgrade you. It is the thing that's, it's the journey that's going to build your strong muscles. Your journey up to the top of the mountain is the thing that's going to challenge you. Being at the top of the mountain is irrelevant. The climbing to the top of the mountain is the thing that's going to be the challenge that's going to force some type of adaptation that's going to get your muscles strong, get your cardio going, get your your lungs really utilizing, you know, all kinds of, um, I don't know, I don't know about you, if you've gone up hills, like even moderate ones that my wife is not even panting on, like I'm out of breath. So, you know, it, it, it just, it challenges you on a certain level and it creates some kind of like inspiration for you to train these types of things. So in these ways, as I say, without going on too much, this is the point of cognitive load is a great way to see what are your limits with just processing information. And then with schema theory and mental models and working memory practice, we can upgrade ourselves very quickly where we can adapt to new information, new situations, new processes very fast. Now, I will say this, that straight away, the, the, the idea of if you are not at a stable place, you are not calm, cool, collected, your working memory capacity goes down dramatically. If you are in a positive emotional state, your working memory increases dramatically. If you are in a stable place, you are not stressed out, you are not frustrated, etc. Working memory, again, increases. Think about it just like oxygen. If you are in a state where your body has just run up a hill, your oxygen consumption is incredibly high. So trying to do some kind of like breath hold or something like that, when you're when you've just finished a hill sprint you're going to get no result whatsoever you still are able to get a result but it's going to be minuscule now imagine that you take two minutes um before you try breath hold you haven't done a hill sprint you're you're completely cool calm collected and then you spend two minutes slowing your breathing down lying still and disconnecting from your body telling your entire body to relax and then you try a breath hold you are going to get a significantly better result just by making sure that your body is primed for that as well. So there's all kinds of things that we can do for this type of thing. So I hope you enjoyed the session. This audio note was just to go back again. We were talking about cognitive load theory and how do we overload the brain, okay? We, we started talking about working memory as well and how that connects with mental models and training. And so one of the biggest things that I can give you at the end of this is that whatever it is that you are trying to process and learn or whatever habits you are trying to do, 
have a ratio of thinking to action to reflection. So they call it a pre-action. Pre-action, then action, and inside that action, notice how much action is occupying relative, um, relative strength of your working memory. So like how much action is too much action before you lose focus, and how much action is, is just enough for you to kind of push yourself. All right. And then after that, you have a reflection session. So putting all three of those into place, um, you, you can then also, in your reflection, you can try and link things together. But I think this is the second part. The most important um, part of all of this is that we define things by their relationships to other things rather than solely by themselves. And this comes back to the human operating system, principle number three, which is context is king. Context is about understanding the situation and where you are relative to the situation. When you go into the situation, the context itself, you can understand it's made up of all of these elements in relation to each other. So it's the relationships between things. That's important. And hopefully I've demonstrated how important that is today as well. Okay, that's the audio. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this session. Uh, if you have, if you think that this is useful to anyone, it's all about value. I don't care if you share this or not. I don't care that you rate me on iTunes or anything like that, or you share me on social media. I'm not going to ask that. That is so unimportant to me right now. What is important is that you get value out of this. And one way to get value out of this, just by listening to it, great. Another way is by sharing it with someone that you can start a conversation around or share it with someone that you think needs a little bit of help in this regard. Okay, so please, uh, you know, share it with someone and I hope that this adds value to you. I'm Justin and this has been Thought Architecture. Have a great day.